Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Ruth, chapter two. We finished up chapter one of Ruth last week, but before we get into Ruth chapter two, I'd like to briefly repeat and summarize a key point from our last lesson. And it is that when a Gentile accepts the God of Israel, he's also to accept God's people, the Israelites. And this is because God makes a spiritual connection between the convert and the Hebrew. Let me also prepare you for today's lesson by saying that while a couple of lessons ago I was preachy, and last week I was teachy, today we're going to get a little more techy. <laughs> All right, but I think you're going to like it. Now, last time, I pointed out this mysterious reality of an inherent but difficult to define relationship that is created between natural-born Hebrews and Gentiles who come to faith in the God of the Hebrews. And we're going to see that from even another perspective in today's lesson. We saw this last week when I broke down Ruth's promises to Naomi into one statement of faith, your God will be my God, accompanied by five promises of action on her part, signaling what amounts to a visible and tangible commitment that ought to necessarily come when a Gentile makes that statement of faith. Those five actions were, I will go wherever you go, I will stay wherever you stay, your people will be my people, I will die where you die, I will be buried where you're buried. The I in that statement is a Gentile. The you is a Hebrew, the Hebrew people. So from another perspective, you could say we have a promise from Ruth to the God of Israel that Jehovah will be Ruth's God and a promise from Ruth to Naomi and in a broader sense to the people of Israel to join them in all the ways that matter. Now as we go through today's lesson, I want you to take special notice how often Ruth will be referred to as Ruth the Moabite or Ruth the foreigner. Yet the locals of Bethlehem are aware of the switch of allegiance that Ruth has made to Jehovah and to Israel, and they are also cognizant of Ruth's loving care of Naomi. So calling Ruth a Moabite is not meant as a slap or a rejection of her conversion, but it is noting a fact of her background, that she has made the decision to leave Moab and its gods behind to cleave to Israel has been accepted, that she is not a biological Hebrew is equally accepted, and yet while she's not a physical ethnic Jew, she now has a Jewish heart or soul, so to speak. Right, as a result of her acceptance of the God of Israel. So the question is, is Ruth now a Jew? 
Or is she still a Moabite Gentile living among the Jews? Or is she some strange kind of hybrid? See, this is a quite relevant issue for the mostly Gentile church of today. Especially with the return of Israel as a reborn nation. And this confronts, I'll tell you, many of our cherished traditions. And at the heart of the matter is exactly how does a Gentile Christian identify him or herself once we accept the God of Israel? This was also an immediate concern among the Gentile, or rather the Jewish Christian leadership and their Gentile Christian converts immediately following Christ's death. So, of course, we see that dilemma brought forward into the New Testament, and Paul, St. Paul, addresses it. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, in Romans 2.25, For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says. But if you're a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as a circumcision. Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the, store, the Torah will stand in judgment on you who have had a brit milah, a circumcision, and have Torah written out but violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart, spiritual, not literal. So that, is, that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. Now, how do I know that Paul is directly addressing the matter of how to regard a Gentile who comes to believe in the God of Israel Versus a situation whereby perhaps a Jew is not operating within the Torah and is being chastised for not being spiritual enough. That is, that Paul is saying for a Jew to be, a, as he uses here, a real Jew or a true Jew, he must have a circumcised heart. Well, that's because of the verse that comes immediately after the last one I just read you. All right, in Romans 3.1. Because Paul says, well then, what advantage has a Jew? All right? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. So now we see, he was talking about Gentiles. In other words... Since the subject was how a Gentile who receives a circumcised Jewish heart, in a matter of speaking, okay, becomes a Jew inwardly, does that mean that from a physical standpoint that there's no longer any distinction between a Gentile and a Jew? Some say, using a rather new belief that I don't subscribe to, that what Paul was getting at is that in some miraculous way a Gentile is physically transformed into a physical Hebrew upon his acceptance of the, of the Hebrew God. Again, I think that's a, a very unwarranted reading of that passage. 
Anyway, Paul says that a real Jew is one inwardly. inwardly. It comes from a miraculous, divinely performed, spiritual circumcision of the heart. Not a miraculous transformation of the human flesh. So this begs the question. How can someone be, of, be one of God's people inwardly, spiritually, but then turn around and reject God's people outwardly? physically. How can you do that? The theology of Ruth says you can't. And Paul's extended argument on this subject in Romans 11 also explains that Gentiles are actually grafted in, spiritually of course, to Israel, to their covenants, and to their God by means of trust in Messiah Yeshua. Thus the misguided doctrine of replacement theology a theology that has gripped way too much of the church for too long. All right? A theology that hopes to prove that Gentiles who love Jesus have replaced the Hebrews as God's people is not only erroneous, but it's utterly impossible. Because the circumcised heart that is received by a saved person makes that person an Israelite inwardly from a spiritual point of view and creates a bond now with physical Israelites. Now, Ruth didn't waltz into Bethlehem and tell the Jewish townspeople that they're old news now. Because now that she, a Gentile, has accepted the God of Israel as her God, she's now God's favorite and they're discarded. Indeed, Ruth is a model for the church to follow. Just like nearly every Christian commentator says she is. Ruth knew that to accept the God of Israel is also to accept Israel. A little later in this lesson, we're going to see another interesting parallel between this Old Testament story of Ruth and a New Testament story of how a Gentile becomes part of Israel spiritually when they accept Israel's God. Let's read Ruth chapter 2 together. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1058. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a prominent and wealthy member of Elimelech's clan, whose name was Boaz. Ruth, the woman from Moab, said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean ears of grain behind anyone who will allow me to. And she answered her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and arrived at the field and gleaned behind the reapers. Now she happened to be in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz from Elimelech's clan. And when Boaz arrived from Beit Lechem, he said to the reapers, Adonai be with you. And they answered him, Adonai bless you. Then Boaz asked his servant, supervising the reapers, Whose girl is this? And the servant supervising the reapers answered, She's a girl from Moab who returned with Naomi from the plain of Moab. And she said to me, please let me glean and gather what falls from the sheaves behind the reapers. So she went and has kept at it from morning until now, except for a little rest in that shelter. And Boaz said to Ruth, did you hear that, my daughter? Don't go to glean in another field. Don't leave this place, but stick here with my working girls. Keep your eyes on whichever field the reapers are working in and follow the girls. 
I've ordered the young men not to bother you. Whenever you get thirsty, go and drink from the water jug that the young men have filled. She fell on her face, prostrating herself, and said to him, Why are you showing me such favor? Why are you paying attention to me? After all, I'm only a foreigner. And Boaz answered her, I've heard the whole story. Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died, including how you left your father and mother and the land you were born in to come to a people about whom you knew nothing beforehand. May Ed and I reward you for what you've done. May you be rewarded in full by Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And she said, oh, my Lord, I hope I continue pleasing you. You have comforted and encouraged me, even though I'm not one of your servants. When mealtime came, Boaz said to her, Come here, have something to eat. Dip your piece of bread in the olive oil and vinegar. And she sat by the reapers, and they passed her some roasted grain, and she ate till she was full, and even had some left over. And when she got up to glean, Boaz ordered his young men, Let her glean even from among the sheaves themselves without making her feel ashamed. In fact, pull some of the ears of grain out from the sheaves on purpose. Leave them for her to glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And when she beat out what she had gathered, it came to about a bushel of barley. Well, she packed it up and went back to the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And Ruth brought, uh, brought out and gave her what she had left over after eating her fill. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where were you working Oh, blessed be the one who took such good care of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had been working. She said, The name of the man with whom I was working today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Adonai, who has never stopped showing grace, neither to the living nor to the dead. And Naomi also told her, That man is closely related to us. He's one of our redeeming kinsmen. But the woman from Moab said, Moreover, he even said to me, Stay close to my young men until they've finished my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, for you to keep going out with, the, with his girls so that you won't counter, encounter hostility in some other field. So she stayed close to Boaz's girls to glean until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Verse 1 essentially explains that Naomi is not blood-related to Boaz. Rather, Boaz is associated with Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And the information is supplied that Boaz is a wealthy man belonging to Elimelech's clan. Now, this reminds us of a couple of lessons ago when I explained that in the first chapter of Ruth... Elimelech's family were called the Ephratim. Remember that? The Ephratim of Bethlehem. And that the root word Ephrath means abundance or fruitful. The point being that Elimelech's clan was a fruitful, a well-to-do clan of the tribe of Judah. And here, with the direct pronouncement that Boaz was wealthy, and of the same clan as Elimelech, we get additional evidence that such was the case. And why the nickname Ephratim was applied to that large extended family. Now this is one of those several places that we're going to get a little technical today. 
Where in the complete Jewish Bible it says that Naomi had a relative? The Hebrew word being translated is moda. So especially in some Bibles where moda gets translated into kinsman. Some of your Bibles may say kinsman there as an abbreviation of sorts of kinsman redeemer. The English translator was jumping to some conclusions. Okay. Moda simply indicates a familial association or even an acquaintance. So in no way is Boaz at this point in the story being painted as anything but a rather distant relative in Elimelech's clan. There is no assumption at the early part of chapter 2 of any family obligation upon Boaz towards Naomi at this point. Now, if you've ever had the interest to look up Boaz's name to see what it means, you found that there's little agreement about it. Okay. Boaz is very unique. No other Bible character shares that name. Right. In fact, outside of the association with the book of Ruth, we find the only other use for the name Boaz um, is as the name of one of those two enormous pillars all right, the other one being Yachin, all right, at the entry to Solomon's temple. And even then there's a lot of disagreement as to what it signifies. All right, so rather than speculate, we're just going to leave the meaning of the name of Boaz as the mystery that it currently is. Ruth and Naomi represent the poor of Bethlehem. And as widows, they have no visible means of support. So Ruth does what was norm, normal for that era. She decides to go out and glean. Now, gleaning was the food stamp program of ancient times. Gleaning gave the poverty-stricken the opportunity to obtain food. But we have to keep in mind that in this agricultural society... Gleaning, of course, occurred simultaneously with the harvesting. So just as a farmer has to sow and then tend and then wait for the crop to grow up and ripen before he can harvest it and then use the produce, so it was for the gleaners. Okay? The poor had to work behind the reapers, the harvesters, then they would immediately pick up what the reapers left behind with the idea of gathering a lot more than they would use in a single day. They would need to store up that produce, their gleanings, usually grain, to use during the bulk of the time that was the planting and then growing cycle when there was no gathering of food, no harvesting, and thus no gleaning. Let's also be clear that among Israel... Gleaning was a right of the poor. It was not a privilege. It was not something that the field's owners could grant or not grant to gleaners according to his charity. The Torah made it God's law that the, land, the land's owner must not harvest all their crops, but rather leave sufficient for the poor, and especially for widows. So Ruth could literally wander around and choose at her own discretion which field she'd like to glean in. In fact, part of the long gleaning was 
that in lean times, the owners of the fields were required to make more of their crops available to the gleaners than usual. That's quite a contrast to the more typical human reaction where in tough times, like our nation and the world in general are experiencing now, that people tend to give less of their incomes to charity even though the number of needy is rising. Verse 3 explains that Ruth happened upon part of a field owned by Boaz where she would do her gleaning. Now the Hebrew, when translated most literally about that, says she chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Now, to the uninitiated, that sounds, in addition to a little bit gobbledygooky, like luck. Just by luck. Alright, well, that's neither the Hebrew nor the heavenly meaning here. Hebrews don't believe in luck. They believe that all things were guided by God's hand. So rather, a better translation of this might be, by divine providence, she came to the field of Boaz. I'm not saying this as a result of hindsight or as an allegory. Rather, that was precisely what the Jewish mindset of that era was meant to convey. So the Lord guided Ruth to Boaz's field, but of course Ruth was completely unaware that the God she had only recently given her allegiance to was behind all this. Sometime after Ruth began her gleaning, Boaz comes out from his home in Bethlehem to check on the progress of his field workers. And in the previous verse, we're told that she came to the part of the field that was owned by Boaz. See, it was usual that fields were common fields shared by several farmers. A farmer would simply own and plant part of a field. Often some rocks might be a a boundary marker between fields. Uh, At other times there was actually none at all. And a farmer simply recognized where his crop ended and began. That's, of course, totally unlike Europe, where we'll find hedgerows that separate plots of land in a very definite way. See, but the Hebrews didn't employ such things. They didn't employ rock fences. As a matter of fact, um, on some of our trips to Israel, people looked out their windows as we passed these fields and talked about the rock fences they see out there, when in fact, what we're really looking at is retaining walls used for terracing. They weren't meant to designate property lines, although I'm sure in some rare instances it probably served a double purpose. Well, Boaz comes to the field and he greets the reapers by saying, Yehovah be with you, and they respond with, Yehovah bless you. This must have been a rather standard greeting format for that local area. You know, when we remember that the book of Ruth was during the days of the judges and recall that spiritual darkness that hovered over Israel that so typified that era this greeting and response indicates that Bethlehem was an enclave of true worshippers of the God of Israel who continued to dedicate themselves to the purer ways rather than give in to the rampant apostasy of the times Well, Boaz 
notice his room. And he asks the man supervising his other workers about her, and he asks, who is this Nara? Who is this Nara? Well, that term means a young girl who's under somebody's charge. Perhaps she was a servant, or, or more typically, she still lived at home under her father's authority. It's not a term that would be used for a married woman or a person who was a known widow. Okay. And the field supervisor answers Boaz by referring to her as that girl from Moab, that, that, that one who returned with Naomi. Now this shows us that in small cities and towns, very little happens without it all kind of getting around. Right? And so Ruth's and Naomi's story was well known among the locals. Well, the harvest supervisor goes on to explain to Boaz that she came to ask him uh, came to ask him if she could glean in his field, and she's been gleaning continuously except to stop for a short break. Well, now there's a bit of a twist here that can go unnoticed and lost in translation. Verse 7 says that the supervisor is saying, Ruth came up to him and asked to glean after the reapers among the sheaves. Now that is problematic. And unlikely, she did not ask to glean among the sheaves because that's not where gleaning took place. Okay. Sheaves are the stalks of grain that have been cut, gathered, and then bundled up by the reapers. The sheaves are the harvest, and they're the property of the owner. Not only would that have been a very arrogant request on Ruth's part, the supervisor certainly would have rebuked her possibly even suggested she go try someplace else. So what was it that she asked? After all, the following verses do show that Ruth was a very meek and humble person in attitude and deed and would have been anything but disrespectful or arrogant. Well, the problem comes from the Hebrew word that can either be mirim or marim. And it stems from the fact that while these two words um, can be pronounced, mean two different things and can be pronounced differently, they mean two different things. But they're spelled identically. Okay, we're going to take a little detour. Those of you that have been studying with Dorothy already know this, all right, but the rest of you may find it interesting that the Hebrew uses an alphabet of all consonants. And a person on their own accord, must add vowels to make a Hebrew word pronounceable. Okay? This was a problem, even for the Jews, especially after the Roman dispersion of the Jews from the Holy Land, not long after Yeshua was executed. See, the problem was that as the generations of the young Hebrews grew up, and scattered all over the Asian and European continents, and as they assimilated into the many Gentile cultures, they lost track of how to pronounce many words of their native Hebrew language. So essentially, when reading Hebrew with its all-consonant alphabet, you could vocalize a word a number of ways depending on what vowel sounds you decided needed to be added to it. Okay? Don't let that statement or concept throw you. It's quite similar for most languages. 
In our own language of English, for instance, let's take the word T-E-A-R. We can vocalize it as tear, meaning the byproduct of crying, or we can vocalize it as tear, meaning to rip something up, like a piece of paper or a piece of cloth. The point being that even though it's spelled the same way, a slightly different way of saying it, of pronouncing it, completely changes its meaning and a person has to have sufficient knowledge and experience with the language, with the culture, and the context of the subject to know just which way you say the word to get the right meaning. Now imagine if English was an all-consonant alphabet. No, A-E-I-O-U. Just like Hebrew. And when we read the word tear or tear, it had no vowels. So you know how it would be written? T-R. That's it. Now what do we do? Well, that's the problem with every Hebrew word. You had to know by context and experience how to see a word in Hebrew and then pronounce it, which finally gave it its meaning. But after a few hundred years of the Hebrew community being scattered and existing only in enclaves and villages among Gentiles, the experience of using the Hebrew language waned. And how to communicate the Hebrew written word so that it could still be spoken became in danger of extinction. So along came a group of Jewish scribes and teachers who, over a thousand years ago, invented a system. Little symbols that they added to the Hebrew letters and words that told the reader what vowel sounds to add and so how to pronounce it. That system today is called the Masoretic system, and it's incorporated into almost any Hebrew text you'll stumble across now. Well, in our case here in Ruth, the question is, which is correct for where it is that Ruth asked to glean? Would it be among the Mirim or among the Marim? Many Bibles say the word is Marim, which means bundled sheaves but it almost certainly ought to be mirim, which simply means stalks. That is, that the stalks are either uncut because the reaper's scythe passed them right by, or they were cut and just left lying there on the ground unbuddled because the reaper's helper didn't pick up every last stalk to bundle to sheep. In the end, it would be totally against Ruth's character to ask to glean among the bundled sheaves. Very inappropriate. Something that just was not done. Well, in verse 8, now that Boaz knows who Ruth is, he speaks with her. And he begins with the words, Did you hear that, my daughter? Now, there's two expressions wrapped up in one here. The first is, Did you hear that? And it has the sense of not actually asking her a question but of making sure she has, uh, he has her full attention. It's like our saying, now pay attention carefully to this, okay? The second part of the expression is, my daughter. And my daughter is not a statement that she is his daughter or even under his familial authority. It's just the way 
that an elder speaks to a younger person affectionately. So just as we saw Naomi refer to Ruth as my daughter in an earlier verse, now we have the equally elderly Boaz addressing the considerably younger Ruth in that same way. So sorry, ladies. This is not a tale of a dashing young man riding to the rescue of a lovely damsel in distress. Boaz is an old guy. So Boaz offers Ruth the chance to glean his field full time. She would not have to work this field for a while and then go try to find another one. Now this is an interesting bit of information because she probably worked there for as much as two months. Even more, we know that she arrived at a time when the barley harvest, uh, rather when the barley was still being harvested. But the wheat harvest usually began right as the barley harvest was nearing its end, so a new crop would be available to glean. The beginning of the barley harvest is approximately at the biblical feast time of Bikurim, also known as first fruits. It was at the same time as Passover, an unleavened bread. Shavuot, Pentecost, which would arrive seven weeks later, was during the wheat harvest. So it was within this particular seven-week time frame between first fruits and Shavuot that Ruth's interaction with Boaz was taking place. We can pretty well nail it. Now, Boaz tells Ruth that he has instructed the young men who are doing the reaping to allow her freedom to do her work and not, they're not to bother her. Not only that, she's been invited to drink from the water jugs that Boaz's hired reapers can drink from. See, this was summertime in Judah. It was pretty hot. Water was critical. If a person had to go get his or her own water, it would take away from their gleaning or reaping time. So by offering Ruth the opportunity to drink from the hired worker's water jug, Ruth could be more productive for herself. Now this is not something that the other gleaners would have had available to them. Okay? Ruth was getting real special treatment here. Why? Why was she getting this treatment? Was she exceptionally beautiful? And this old man, Boaz, was attracted to her? That could have played a role. But this same question puzzled Ruth. Why this favoritism towards her? So she falls down prostrate at Boaz's feet and she thanks him for his kindness and inquires, why would he be acting so favorably to her especially since she's a foreigner, she says. There it is again. That reference to Ruth and her Moabite heritage. Although Ruth, to Naomi's surprise, rejected her past identity to take on a new one with Israel and Israel's God, her ethnicity as a Moabite remains with her. Now Ruth is surprised at such grace shown to her by Boaz. How has she merited such a thing? Well, in verse 11, Boaz answers her question. And we need to take it as an honest and truthful answer and not read anything extra into it. Boaz says it's her character that he so admires. 
He has heard the stories of Naomi's Moabite daughter-in-law who came to Bethlehem with her and has so devotedly cared for this old Jewish woman. Even more, he is impressed by her complete show of sincerity and unity with the Jewish people when she gave up her own people. She left the comfort of her own mother and father who could have ensured a very decent and protected life for her until she found a new husband. She left behind her own nation. She switched allegiance from Moab to Israel. And even more, she has come forward to Judah without knowing anything about the Jewish people or what to expect. Such is the commitment and faith that Ruth the Gentile exhibited that it fascinated Boaz and would soon bring her a great reward from the God of Israel. Gentile Christians, take notice of this. I know many of you expected a nice, comfortable study of Ruth where the standard focus was on the parallel between Boaz and the Messiah. And that is certainly in there, and we're going to look at it closely. But up to this point in Ruth, that subject simply isn't present. If we're going to take the story of Ruth as a type and shadow of Christ and his church, then we need to accept the whole of the matter and take it fully in context, not just pick it apart and take the parts we like. This first part of Ruth is as much about a Gentile's relationship with the people of Israel as the last part of Ruth will be about a Gentile church and its relationship with our Jewish Savior. Boaz blesses Ruth in verse 12 and ends his statement with a very interesting wordplay that we're going to find used later in the story in a different way, but I I need to connect it for you now so that it's not missed. Boaz says to Ruth, May you be rewarded in full by Yehovah, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. The operative phrase is, under whose wings, God's wings, you have come for refuge. The Hebrew word that is translated as wings is kanaf. And the usual image is of a mother bird stretching out her wings over her chicks to guard and protect them from storms and predators. But while the idea of protection and rest is certainly intended, I think the choice of words is to draw a parallel. So let's briefly jump ahead to Ruth 3 and see that parallel. Ruth 3, chapter 3, verse 6 says this, she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did everything as her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz was through eating and drinking and was feeling good, he went to lie down at the end of a pile of grain. And she stole in, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And in the middle of the night, the man was startled, and he turned over, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he asked, who are you? And she answered, I'm your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid because you are a redeeming kinsman. Now, this is the part of the story that most of us have heard before because it's so dramatic and for the girls, romantic. 
But look at the last sentence. It says that Ruth asked Boaz to spread your robe over your handmaid because you are a redeeming kinsman. What it actually says, with a little Hebrew added back in, is spread your kanaf over your handmaid because you are a goel. Remember, kanaf, earlier translated metaphorically as God's wings spread over Ruth for her heavenly well-being, is now used in the very same way, just hidden because of the English translation, that Boaz should spread his kanaf, should spread his wings, that are metaphorically his robe, over her for her earthly well-being. And this is because Boaz is Ruth's goel, kinsman redeemer. See, the spreading of his robe over her was a sign of him taking her under his wing, taking her to a place of refuge. Now, I'm not sure if the connection is becoming clear to you, but I hope so. Ruth, the widow, back in Moab, didn't know much about Jehovah. But God put enough faith into her for her to, want, for her to know that she wanted him. Okay. But now, this naive Gentile is in the process of learning more about the true God of the cosmos, whom she has given herself over to. God the Father is Ruth's ultimate place of refuge, and she has chosen to put herself under his kanaf. Ruth did this when she made her six-part declaration back in Moab and then returned to Judah with Naomi. And you know, Ruth didn't do it passively. She insisted on it. Remember that? She glued herself to Naomi and to Jehovah, and she would not take no for an answer no matter how hard Naomi tried. She attached herself to God and to his people, wouldn't let go, no matter how logical and practical Naomi's argument against this course of action seemed. Well, in Ruth chapter 3, which of course we'll come back and study in a lot more depth, Ruth thrusts herself upon Boaz and essentially insists that Boaz be her kanaf on earth. Ruth didn't sneak into the place with sleeping and crawl under his robe to take no for an answer. I'm serious. Essentially, Ruth says to him, Hey, Boaz, it's your obligation to redeem me. Because you're my goel. You're my kinsman redeemer. You have no choice. We're going to talk a lot about the kinsman redeemer in coming lessons. Let's go back to chapter 2. Verse 13. There, after Boaz has blessed Ruth for being so dedicated to Naomi and to the God of Israel, she responds to Boaz with, My Lord, I hope I continue pleasing you. You have comforted, you have encouraged me, even though I'm not one of your servants. Let me put this another way because the intent is for us to understand her to say something like this. You're a Jewish man with a lot of wealth and even though I'm a poor Gentile, I can offer you nothing. You've comforted and encouraged me. This ought to be every Gentile's prayer of thanksgiving to our Messiah, Yeshua. 
In verse 14, Boaz begins to draw near to Ruth and offers his dining table to her. Boaz was demonstrating one of the most valued qualities that a human can, hesed. He was actively showing her kindness. Gleaners were usually, at best, left alone to fend for themselves. But Boaz instead offered Ruth food from his own table. He offered for her to dip her bread in a concoction called chometz, which is a sour sauce of sorts that's used to spice up dry bread. Not only that, but Ruth was allowed to sit with the reapers, those of a higher status, people who were paid wages to harvest for the owner. She was offered roasted grain, a rather standard fare for reapers during the harvest season, and she was allowed all she could eat and more. But Boaz's hesed is magnified. When after the meal, Ruth gets up to go back to her gleaning and Boaz instructs his supervisor and reapers to allow Ruth to glean even from among the sheaves. Remember how we examined that statement of Ruth earlier about this? That she had supposedly asked to glean among the sheaves, but the problem was that the Hebrew word could have been mirim or marim. And I said that in the context of that earlier statement, the word had to be mirim, stalks. Because she never would have assumed to ask to glean among the marring, the sheaves. But now, Boaz takes the opportunity to generously tell his men to have her glean among the marring, the actual bundled sheaves. Even more, they're to pull some stocks away from the bundles and let her have those. This is a most magnanimous act of charity. We're going to talk about a whole nother aspect of this removal of stalks from the sheaf for the sake of a Gentile the next time we meet. That'll do it for today.